Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, if you win, you're British. If you lose, you're black. In our deep dive, we take a look at racism in international soccer following the fallout from Euro 2021. What's the real economic, social, and performance impact of racism in the world's most popular sport? And what does that tell us about ourselves? And in Courage or Cringe, DACA hits a roadblock, Hobby Lobby's First Amendment ad campaign, and Idris Elba wants your ID. Is a federal judge's recent DACA ruling a politically influenced hit job that advances an anti-immigrant agenda? Or is it a principal decision that puts the onus of immigration reform back in the legislative branch where it belongs? Is a Christian-owned and run retailer's ad campaign a beacon of free speech and advertising? Or is it a veiled attack on pluralism and religious freedom for everyone? And finally, is a Hollywood star's recommendation of mandatory ID to bring bad actors to light in social media a masterstroke of genius or another potential attack on consumer privacy from social platforms that already know way too much? This and so much more on this week's episode of TDR. Santa Cecilia. That's what I was thinking about. Oh, the new record? The new, the new. I don't know what the name of the album is, but they have a new track. I saw the, uh, the video on YouTube. It was a really good song. It was actually really cool. I was back on this whole tip of you and I have been listening talking about. Listening to albums. I'm telling you, there's something there. I think that we have to go back to album listening because um, you, you, you heard my thesis, but you know, I don't, it, may, it may be worth repeating here that... Let's hear it. I think... The idea of albums, which, you know, I think has been replaced largely by the idea of singles and videos and now increasingly even shorter kind of forms of media, right? TikToks, et cetera. Yep. But the idea that albums is really cool because something unique is happening on the artist side as, it, as is happening on the listener or the, the viewer side, if you will. And what I mean by that is that when you have an album, an album from an artist's perspective is representative of a period of time of an era, of an epoch, of, you know, somebody going through something. It's a breakup, it's a new relationship, it's a new stage in life, whatever it may be. And that artist is telling that full story over whatever number of songs it is, seven, right, 12, right. 10, yeah. whatever. And so there's something unique about each song, but there's also something special about the album. And then I think the same thing happens on the listener side, which is 
you have somebody listening at a particular, you know, across all these songs, if you're listening to the uh, whole album, and that whole period can be representative for you of of an important part that you're going through, right? And it can tell the whole story for you. So I think like it's a unique kind of artist and listener or artist and viewer or artist and patron kind of thing that happens with albums. And I just, I don't know, I don't think we do that that much anymore. At least I I hadn't, like I, I hadn't listened to an album beginning to end in, yeah, I don't know. For me, it had a been a while, time. but it, it just so happened that when you brought the, the topic, I had literally just gone through that and listened to two few, two of uh, my favorite albums, and probably my still, I still think probably my favorite artist that I've ever had uh, listened to, which is uh, D'Angelo, and I think his first two albums, in my humble humble opinion, are I think are, are two of the best albums put together, where literally every single song was a hit. Nice. Every single song, and it's it, and it is very representative to your point of a time period, right? Like the first album, which was labeled uh, uh, called Brown Sugar. Um, I think that came out when I was in, I was in high school. I'm not sure exactly when in high school that was, because um, I don't know if I heard it immediately when it came out. Yeah. And then I remember his second album. Uh, I think it's called Devil's Pie. That one is actually not as clear to me in terms of Brown when that Sugar happened. came out in 1995. Oh, perfect. So I was graduating from high school. Yeah. That makes, ex- it's a good makes year. perfect sense as to why. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. My freshman year, uh, that was a, an, and it was like a very odd thing because none of my friends listened to that kind of music. It, they all thought it was really odd that I listened to this very why? soulful. Well, because it was like it, R&B? Yeah, because it was a, like I was, you know, it, it, that's not the kind of music that you listen to as a single guy graduating from high school. Like it's... You know, it was a lot of hip hop music people listen to, especially my friends. So they find it very odd that this very soulful kind of music, uh, very complex kind of sound that this guy put together, that that's the kind of thing I would be into. (laughs) I like that stuff right around that time. Especially at that age, though, you know? For sure. That was right around the same time, like Erica Badu and all that stuff came out. That was also a very similar kind of vibe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that was that was all in, the, in that sort of time period. Um, We've already established, though. He was, so he was one of the best. He, he, yeah, for sure. We're, we he, he only did by so. only like three albums, maybe four. I mean, he did not do much music. He's not doing anything now? Uh, there's a one album I was listening to very recently, and I don't know when that album came out, but it, to my knowledge, he, was, he went away for a long, long time. Yeah, I'm looking at his Wikipedia right now. Uh, Devil's Pie is the second album that, I, that to me is like, once again, some of the best... Best but album. these are album. This is an album that you think from beginning to end. It beginning only shows, to end, it yeah. only shows two. Um, yeah, it's really there should be weird. like three albums that that he has. There was another one that he did like a live from this cafe in Paris. I think is what he did. But that was not really like an album. It was like repeats of his own songs. It looks like the highest uh, peak position that he had in the dance charts was "Me and Those Dreaming Eyes of Mine." Yeah, 1996. That's, that's from his first album. Yeah. Position number two. Never got to number one. That's got to be tough, getting their number two. Your right, whole uh, right, dis, right. you know, discography gets their number two. Yeah. No, but I don't know. I just, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I was feeling a little bit nostalgic. I was listening to, you know, full albums and, you know, ride my motorcycle and stuff. Oh, but and, it's called Voodoo, not, not, uh, not Devil's Pie. Devil's Pie is a song within the, the, the album called Voodoo. Oh, uh, okay. Very good, yeah. 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 No, I don't see the albums here on the Wikipedia. It just shows the singles. Yeah, but, yeah. Anyway, albums. We need more albums. That's my that's my thesis. So we're on the um, we're on the road today. Yes, remote show from uh, lovely Glendale. Is were we Nevada? Actually, <laughs> well, I can't even tell you where how far we are from home. It may as well be Nevada, Glendale from uh, the west side of Los Angeles. I know, is, that sounds uh, like a very, that's a very LA comment, isn't it? But we're actually in a in a TV studio, so um, you know I think it's, it sounds pretty good. We'll see what happens. 
We'll see what happens, see where it goes. But um, it's nice to be in a different spot, you know what I mean? Slightly larger uh, table, get a little bit more distance from you so I can take, take a swing and, you know, get some... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this side of the episode goes, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, very interesting uh, headline for our show. What does it even mean, right, if you win your British, if you lose your black? And, of course, yeah. the real saying is if you win, you're English. Right. And if you lose, you're black. But we thought uh, that may not be as clear to understand, given the fact that English is also a language. But what does that even mean? Where does that come from? Well, we wanted to, as a part of the deep dive, really talk about the impact that racism has had in the, in the game of soccer, especially when you think about the international game of soccer, right? So part of this came, of course, because over a little, a little bit over a week ago, so not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before that, we had the Euro 2020 final where Italy defeated England in penalty kicks, right? So it was a great game, by the way. I watched the end of it. Yeah. I watched the second half on the penalty kicks. At the exact same time that the, uh, is it Copa Oro? Or what is the other, the... Uh, uh, Copa Oro just started, I want to say. Not Copa Oro, the other one, the... Uh, oh, con- the, the, uh, the is Copa it, America. Copa America. Yeah, yeah. that one, that one uh, Argentina one. That Argentina one. So my joke was, you know, both the Northern and Southern Hemisphere Italians won. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, also Argentina was interesting, right? Like they've been chasing that for a long, long for time, sure. especially for Messi, right? So Never won for, one. Was very happy for him that he finally got one under his belt. So mm-hmm. that was, you know, good for them. I'm sure, you know, his people were very, very happy. Uh, but yeah, but this game um, was really interesting for a whole set of reasons. It was like for England, it's been a while since they've been able to win a Euro Cup. And they've had a lot of struggles. So the fact that they got there was really impressive. And with a very, very young team. England's reputation for people who don't follow soccer, at least on a national level, is that they're always going to break your heart. That's right. basically their reputation that they have. They won the World Cup in 60, I think, or 60, 64. I don't know. It was only once. They've only won once, the World Cup, which, of course, is the biggest competition. Um, but just as a national squad, they tend to be have a reputation of starting really strong, tons of hype. They're going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then just, just But this fall. time, they made it all the way they to the end. They went to the final with, a you know, once again, a very young team. But, but the sad thing here is that what's actually gotten the most attention was not the score or the fact that they had this awesome run, but the immediate racist reaction that the three young black players from England who all three missed their penalty kicks. Now, I think two of them got subbed in, like literally the last minute of the overtime uh, or last few minutes of overtime, right? But it was the three black players that missed their penalty kicks that received tons of basically hate online. Uh, for, for, miss, for missing those, those goals, which is where this sort of uh, this phrase comes from and then was repeated again, which is when you win, you're English, and, but when you lose, you're, you're black, right? This, and th- this game went to, when, a, you know, when the game is tied, obviously, if it's still tied at the very end of regulation time, yeah. they go to a penalty kickoff, basically. Yeah, so what they f- do is they go to overtime, which is two 15-minute right. yeah. periods, right, so 30 minutes, and then they go to penalty kicks. Right. Um, and it was in, in, that, in those penalty kicks where... Uh, where they, they missed, right? Um, As an aside on penalty kicks, is it my impression or has it just gotten a lot less accurate or easier to get blocked? Like penalty kicks for me used to be almost an automatic. Like there'd be the one guy who missed out of five. <clears throat> they're, they're, yeah. But the keepers have gotten much better. Like keepers, the, the keeper for Italy, to his credit, that dude was yeah. as cool as ice, man. He, yeah. to his credit, he wasn't too hype. He was just like, And those I was dudes are stopping left and right. They're doing impressed. really good. I mean, look, put put aside the racism part. I mean, mm-hmm. the part of the challenge that I, at least mine, was like a very, not very sophisticated opinion about the penalty kicks. It's part of they got a little, they got a little cute on some of the some of the penalty kicks. Yeah, well, they have. I mean, and, you think about that's it, it's like, part of the challenge because most cases, if you just go up there and just hammer. drill one, 
yeah, you're not going to get stopped. It's just really hard to stop it. It just really is. But that's the thing is everybody's trying to fake out the keeper and the keeper's trying to fake out the striker and everybody's playing games with each other and because it's getting a little all, too cutesy. you've all seen the YouTube videos of people just like run up and they just like pop, pop the ball up and the, the keeper just dives to the side yeah. and the ball rolls right in, right? Fake. So yeah. there's all these different things. But put that all aside, I mean, mm-hmm. the reality is that these guys just got destroyed online, right? And the for, missing. Is for missing, yeah. right? And, and it wasn't just for missing. Like, it's one thing to go after them for missing as soccer players, right? But is that for being, once again, this, this comment that because they lost, now they're once again reminded that they're black. And, and it was just another reminder of the racism problem that the European soccer has faced for, for, for a long time, right? It did this, this, of course, got immediate condemnation from leaders, including, you know, the prime minister, Boris Johnson, and even Prince Williams, right? Now, Johnson said at a news conference, to those who have been directing racist abuse at some of the players, I say shame on you, and I hope you will crawl back under the rock from which you emerged. The entire team play like heroes. And, and that, by the, that sentiment, by the way, I would say, at least in the coverage that the media gave to the team, was very much like they play like heroes despite them you know, losing. But it was, once again, the, the, the actual online response, right? Um. So what's interesting here is the players, right? In some part, some of this is also, I think, very reflective of the times, right? Because for some of the players, they've used their fame to actually stake out some of the political positions, right? That have also caused mixed emotion, right? Can I just set just like a little bit of a backdrop, though? Because this whole idea of the abuse that these guys got for missing the penalty kick reminded me of just how ludicrous the heightened sense of kind of nationalistic pride can become around these competitions. Yeah, sure. As a, as you know, as a person of Colombia's Colombian descent, I remember one of the best squads that Colombia ever had was a 1994 national team. Uh-huh. The, that cup was actually here in the U.S., I think, if I, if I, if I recall correctly. But, yeah, I already know what you're going to say, but yeah, yeah. But Andres Escobar, right, who was one of the players, did an own goal. Right, an um, auto goal. An auto goal, right? Auto right. goal is how you say it in Spanish, but an own goal in English. And and this guy, not only was he, I mean, this is before social media, obviously, but the guy was completely torn apart in the press. His family was threatened, and he was eventually shot and killed. Right. By right. by, you know, I don't even remember who who it was, but I mean, this guy was murdered right. for having made a mistake on the pitch because. One of the problems with all this stuff is that you get this sense of national pride wrapped up into all of this stuff. And it's like somehow the entire, you know, cu- country has been... The reputation Im- of the country. The reputation of the, com- right. of the country has, has been impacted. And then some nut takes it upon himself to like go right this wrong, right, on the uh-huh. scale. And there's some of that in this, I think. Th- there is definitely some of that in here. I think the other element that which I was going to get into is that there also is this dynamic that has been added to sports around social activism. Right. Right. Which is something that definitely comes across it was happening here with, with the game in the fact that, you know, when we had all of the social unrest here in the US, you know, it wasn't just a US issue, especially in the response that people had to the death of George Floyd, is that that happened also globally. And even the notion of people kneeling in response to police brutality, in response to, frankly, racism is sort of like the broader stance, that's something that also translated to European soccer. And it's something that specifically the English team has been doing, right? In, in, a, in an item that um, there's been some mixed emotions, right? There is, uh, as an example, uh, Boris Johnson, right? His home secretary, uh, Pretty Patel, refused to condemn people for booing them when the team kneels before games, right? 
Um, and it's something that they did again as part of the final, where even Italian, Italian players also joined them in kneeling down, right? So that also adds this extra layer of of sort of these issues being sort of weaved in, right? But the reality is, so it's not just really an issue in England, right? That's, that's kind of the part of the problem, right? So in recent years, UEFA, the governing UEFA. body mm-hmm. yeah, of European soccer, you know, has worked quite a bit to combat racism against its players, both online and in stadiums. Um, but the behavior has persisted, right? In Italy and, and in other places, world-class players of color have been subjected to racism chants. Uh, they even have bananas thrown on the field, right? There's a lot of that's actually uh, the common one is that it's primarily the black players that get all the abuse, um, and that's you know, and unfortunately, it happens all the time. Look, even recently, a few days ago, Germany's Olympic soccer team walked off the field during a friendly game they were playing versus Honduras, which was meant to be a warm up of the Tokyo Olympics, uh, citing race, racist abuse of one of their players, of one of the German players, one of the, the German Honduran players, players. No, 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 right? One of the German players, correct? Right? So. They walked off the field, so it is an issue that unfortunately has been so embedded in not okay in not, in, in, in soccer in general, yeah, you know, not, European soccer specifically. Th- this is not it, it. matters to a degree, I guess, what the answer to this question is, and it's not to excuse, but just to explain or try to make sense of it. How much of this is this again, kind of more nationalistic thrust of? your country beat my country, I hate you, and I'm now trying to find the most, uh, you know, destructive way to explain that animosity to you. Not that it matters. I'm just saying how much of it is that versus, versus, I just don't like black people. And I asked that in the context of, you just mentioned the German team. Right. A lot of people not necessarily equate the German national team with having black players, but they do. They do. They have yeah. black players on the team. A lot of them are, you know, obviously immigrants uh, or children of immigrants from Africa and other places, but they do have black players, German players on the team who are black. So again, not that it matters, but I'm asking just as a point. I, I think of the the national the national games definitely I think hide it even more, right? Yeah. But it's not an issue that is in any way limited to the national to national teams because part of the examples they bring up is what's happened quite a bit in the Italian league, right? Where black players who play in the Italian leagues have been abused specifically with this kind of racism. Sure. Right? So some of these examples talk about throwing bananas at players. That's not, if I recall correctly, those are not international games. Those are yeah, not like. Those are, like those yeah. are within actual Those leagues. are clubs. Those right. are clubs, leagues. yeah. yeah, yeah better, mm-hmm. better way to put it. Yeah, those, yeah. Are, those are clubs. So, I mean, I definitely think that to your point, when you're talking about national teams playing, there is this high, like, sort of ridiculousness that happens, mm-hmm. stupidity that happens, frankly, between, you know, how people feel that the team, what they're doing represents the honor of the entire country. And therefore, any kind of negative reaction becomes so much more, you know, blown up to, your, to the example that you gave mm-hmm. what happened in Colombia. But... Yeah, it's not limited to that. I mean, that's that's part of the problem here. It, it, well, you know, what was interesting in, in looking at this issue is there's, of course, all of the dynamics. And even the, the thing that I did find already super interesting in, th- in thinking about this is that what role has the fact that social activism is now playing a bigger role within sports? Does that creating additional animosity? Maybe in a in really in a, in, in a sport that already was dealing with this issue before because it's not a new thing. Well, it's right? definitely adding a new variable it, to it, the whole. It's thing. adding to it for yeah. sure, and that because that was part of the reaction. People were saying like, "Oh, you guys are now like defending the team, but yet you're not willing to stand for the players when they want to call for more racial justice." Right, so there is this dynamic that is being sort of pushed there, and I think for some people that already were looking for the excuses, just gives them more an excuse to go and, and you know go after them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing I think about this this issue is, of course. 
at a macro level, this is you know massive social and cultural issue, right? But but the you know but what about like the actual players themselves, right? What impact does this have on their ability to perform as athletes when they are at constant risk of being targeted with racism? Going back to like if a mistake is made by a black player, isn't just a football player that made a mistake, is that it's a black player that made a mistake, right? And that question, what I thought was really interesting is that I found in a report, right, this analysis that was done this past December, a group of economists from the University of Trento in Italy and the Organization of Economic Corporation and Development in Paris, they basically set out to try to ask this question, which is by posing one of the first studies seeking to measure the impact of in-stadium abuse on the game. Which was like, like on performance on itself. On performance, yeah. yeah. Like what is the, the mental and physical impact that it has on the performance of the players when people are being abused or there is the risk of abuse, right? And how they did this, I thought, was, was actually really, really smart, right? They looked at the performance of about 500 Series A players, right? They play within the Italian league, right? Serie A. It's Serie A. It's Serie A, okay. Serie A. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, in the first half of the 2019-2020 season, right, of the main Italian Championship League, so this is before the COVID-19 pandemic when mm-hmm. the stadiums were full. And then compare that to the second half, right, when games were played in empty stadiums, right? Because you're never going to get that chance again, realistically, right? right? It's like no, you may as well it's, it's actually it. a great, I mean, super. you hate to, like, you know, see the silver lining in, in a pandemic, but it actually, in this specific case, it allowed for that kind of dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Now, according to their study, there was only, only one group of sub-players, right, who played noticeably better in the absence of crowds. Right now, in regards to the results, the, the 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 people from the study they said, and I quote: "We find that players from Africa, who are most commonly targeted by racial harassment, experience a significant improvement in performance when supporters are no longer at the stadiums. Right? Any supporters, though, not Any just supporters. the racist ones, all of them, all of them. Well, yeah, because the the reality is they're equating to having supporters." It's really hard to separate those that are racist those those are not. Really I think it's the dynamic of the fact that when supporters are there, the right. likelihood of having a chance of someone, you know, having a racist reaction against them is just higher, right? right. And there's a thing kind of hanging over your head, right? So two additional points, right? They said that players of African origin play worse in front of spectators, but nobody else performed better. Okay, so hang on a second. Do you say that again? So players of African origin uh-huh. play worse in front of spectators. Yes. But nobody else performed better. So the non-black players did not improve in right. stadiums with no fans. Right. But the black players did. But the black players got worse, right? So, so, so I'm no, sorry. No, they, they the got, opposite, right? So, so, so the black players got worse. Right. But the non-black players didn't play better or worse in, in either scenario. Think of it that way. But wait a minute. No, no, no. The, the, the black players didn't play worse in the non... They, they played worse in the in the stadiums that have people, not in the ones without people. Right. The, it was only those African origin players right. who played worse when there was people, right? Worse when there was people, right? That's but what I mean. But the non-black yeah. players did not play better, Got meaning it. that their so performance was about so the same net with neutral. or without, without crowds. So net neutral with or without, so black in players essence, net positive without. Black player net positive, correct, or or better way, net negative with, right? Net negative with, net okay. negative with with, okay. with, with, with fans, yeah. which means that it only made the overall performance worse when right. fans were, were available, right? Of because course, all, the team there was only one portion of the, of, of the players that got worse. Yeah, no one got better. How did they jump? What are the what are the metrics of? Did, did they you, looked at everything, right? Like the uh, their passing accuracy assist, shots. Accuracy, I mean, they actually shot have a lot of data. Goal. They actually looked, they looked at what what I was and I didn't include any of this here. They looked at a lot of metrics that you will look at, at like fantasy sports. Right, yeah, which that makes complete sense to me. Like, yeah, if you yeah. do that, yeah. perfect, right? Just see, like, you can measure all the performance that you typically do. Like, do you see any variance there, right? Um, and it was even more interesting. Here's the the one that blew me away. 
in those players that have already been subject to racial incidents or played for teams that have been subject to race to racial incidents, right? Their performance was three times higher than the average of the African descent players. Who had not been exposed who, to it. Right, right. So, so think about that. When there was no fans around. So they got significantly better. Okay, okay. So, so, okay, so hang on. So, let's, so let me give you the actual numbers, okay? So let's the, make it easier. Okay, okay? go ahead. Because so I, on average, yeah. African mm-hmm. origin players yeah. performed 3% better. It's only 3%, right? 3% better when there was no fans got on it. average, right? Okay. Then when you looked at the teams... Black, pl- black players. The teams yeah. and, and that had black players who had had historically some racial incidents. Yes. Right? Those black players that were African descent performed 10% better when there was no fans around. So Got they it. basically were through over 3x better Got it. than the average increase of those African descent players. Okay, so this is super interesting. How for, crazy is super, that? Super crazy, especially when you consider that the overall quality of the game is impacted by this, obviously. It's not just what's happening with them sure. individually. But here's the interesting thing about this, because I had scanned the notes on this earlier, and I thought, like, I was like, you, you know, I thought it was super interesting, but I thought my commentary was going to be, well, hang on a second, Jesus. You can't attribute the Delta entirely to racism, okay? And clearly, you almost, you still can't in a way, right? right? you still can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then- But they, it's high correlation. No, no, but super high correlation, especially because they have the second group. The second, yeah, second group, group, which yeah, is yeah, the yeah. one who's already been experiencing, uh, exposed to this, and how they overperformed even the overperforming group. Right. The point that I was going to bring up is this, and I think it solves for at least maybe the first 3% of that variance, not the, not, not the 10, but the three. Yeah. And that is the fact that m- almost 100%, I mean, they even call them African players because- African descent players. So African descent are, players yeah, yeah. because it be, you know, when, we, when we think of black people, we think from an American context, we think of a variety of people, American black, um, black from, you know, from the African continent, black from other parts of the world. But from a soccer context, especially Italian soccer, which is what this is, 100% of the players are of African descent. The reality of it is, is we don't really export very many American players to these international leagues. L- less of oh, sure, sure, sure. Of the, p- the American players we ex- export, like I don't even know of like what the African American players are. So it's a very, very small minority. And then you start thinking. But I also of, don't know how many like African Italian players are playing in the Italian league. Meaning, there's, there's a number. There's definitely a number. So the, yeah. even the African descent one, right, part of it, you like, can make the argument, which is, well, yeah, but how how more, how removed really, how many generations removed they are from Africa, right? Yeah, and true. I, I don't know. They didn't true. actually speak to that. Well, yeah. And, that, I, and there may be some big difference there, maybe for those think, that are more recent immigrants. And I think that, there is, because that's, that's kind of where I was going to go. And again, I'd like to look at the data a little bit more closely, because you have players, I mean, famous Italian black player, like Mario Balotelli as an example, who is like Italian through and through, right? I mean, of course, he's descent from... Uh, yeah. Uh, from African, uh, you know, uh, family, but he himself is a town where you have other people who are actually are sure. more recent, um, you know, immigrants, especially playing on international clubs where you don't have to be a citizen of the country, right? If you're representing the national team in the World Cup, the idea is that you are from that country and you either by naturalization or because you were born there. Not the case in international competitions at the right. club level. But my point is that I was going to make, this is a long-winded way of saying this. The point I was going to make is that a lot of the uh, African players who are now playing in Europe, especially in Italy, um, come from West Africa, right? No offense to East or South or North, but the, what, the players are in West Africa. Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria. That's who have like the really great 
players. Those, that well, those only also have better national teams too. Right? Yeah, better so, national so they probably teams. have better soccer infrastructure correct. altogether. Correct. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, something like Kenya, for example, like never hear of them in the World Cup. Exactly, and only because I've great runners, though. great runners, and same thing with the Ethiopians. So East Africa is known for running, West Africa for soccer. Anyway, my point is that only because I've been there, I can tell you that there's not a lot of stadium play. There's not a lot of crowds watching you play, right? And so this idea, because I was thinking, well, what percentage of this is just the fact that being in this environment... Like in the bright lights, you think? Well, I'm just saying, given the backdrop of West know, African man. soccer... I, well, no, yeah, no, I think right, you answered it. it. I think you answered it, which is it's at least correlated to the first delta, which is a 3%. Maybe, yeah. Some portion of it, to my mind, has to the, be in the, the only reason in that why third delta. I have a little harder time with or that argument you're making, delta. Charlie, is because when you think about these players that play for these kind of international teams, mm-hmm. they get recruited so young that they're in those bright lights for a long time. Like these are, for the most part, like these guys that get through, put into systems like as kids many times. Yeah. Right? They, get re- they get identified really, really early. So yeah, they, they do. So this notion of not, of so much not being Africa, as much yes. in the bright lights. But, but, you, but you think about the guys that make it to that level are, yeah. are people that are tend to be identified pretty early on. So there could be some of that of, of people feeling uncomfortable with the bright lights I, I, because you're talking about the biggest sport in the world. Right. right? And, and in the biggest mm-hmm. stages of the world, which is the, what we're talking about here. But you're right. That second group is where is there such a big jump? Yeah, that it's just hard to say that this way, there isn't a, a, a tight correlation there. I'd love or to strong s- correlation. There. I'd love to see uh, another group go through this who who comes from maybe predominantly very rural and poor countries that have a similar makeup to West African players. Again, I think that this, the, the second group about, or the second stat, which is the 10%, right. says exactly like that delta to me is 100% racism. From the seven to the 10, or from the, the whatever. The, from from the, the four to the 10, I guess. From the four saying. to the 10. Yeah, from uh, the three that, to the 10. Yeah, from yeah. the three to the 10, that 7% is 100% racism. Yeah. Of the three, either all of it or there's got to be some portion of it some. that. Yeah, I'm sure there's, there's some. just a kind of the bright It would be lights. interesting to think about other players that come from other parts of the world to see whether they have similar kind of dynamic, right? To your point. But specifically, poorer, more rural right, 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 areas right, right. that don't have the kind of like, if you go it's, to, if you're coming up in, in um, uh, you know, another European country, if you're coming up in the States, you know, you're used to this idea of fandom and stadiums and whatever, if you're coming up in maybe Honduras, right? Guatemala, right, sure, sure. you know, Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, places like that where you're playing oftentimes barefoot, you're playing, you know, oftentimes not even with a ball. You're like taking, sure. you know, you're growing up in a village, you're using rags and wrapping them together to make a ball to play. And then suddenly you get scooped up, yes, at 13, 14, but then you get shipped to a stadium and two years later, you're playing at San Siro in Milan with 95,000 yeah, 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 yeah. people. I mean, I mean, dude, I mean, the, that's... The biggest... Yeah, the, this is a bunch of really interesting... Stat- well, wait, one thing I did... I have this to is why I'm not a statistician, by mentioned the way, here Or is a researcher. This analysis is not peer-reviewed yet, okay? So it is... They're going through that process now. Now you tell me. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's definitely worth mentioning, right? No, it's super so, interesting. Yeah, but they're going is. through it. But I think it was so interesting, the stats and the, the, the lens that they're using to look at racism, because we talk about it so much from a social, social cultural kind of lens, which is important... But when you think about the type of stress that these players must be under, knowing that their every move, and we know from a practical standpoint, unfortunately, many times when you are a minority, it's like you, whether you like it or not, you are representing many times your entire ethnic group, sure. whether you, whether that's your intent or not, right? And yep. I think we're seeing some version of that. So you have to imagine there is obviously some kind of impact here. And even if once it gets reviewed, it gets adjusted some, I just thought that the the lens that they were using looking at the the impact that racism has on sports. I mean, if you're an Italian league team and you're under this group where some of your players are doing 
10% worse. Yeah, it's because crazy. of the environment that you have in your stadium. Like, I will be extremely concerned. I'd be exactly, but I mean, it's extremely like, concerned. And, and then, like, how do you solve for that? How do you solve for either the fir- assuming the first three percent is just bright lights, big city, and then seven percent is full on racism? You, <clears throat> how do you optimize for that? I think the way you solve for it is look, give everybody earpods. Let, let's not go so far away. Let's talk about what's happening with the Mexico national team. Sure, right? They've struggled for years with trying to control the crowds. To now have basically not have a very uh, traditional a- anti-LGBTQ chant that they always do, right? In games, and what they started to crack down is like, look, you keep on doing that, we're not gonna let you in the games anymore. And you saw like a, I mean, it's taken a long time, but recently this it seemed like it's starting to turn around. And is that threat of saying, hey, you continue yeah. doing this, you're not gonna be in the games. And there is look in terms of of fan bases that travel really well. Support their national team. Mexico is at the very top of the list. If they're not, they may not be number one or no, but they're top five. They're up there. They're for really sure. up the there. The national team just played Nigeria here, like two, three weeks ago in downtown LA. At, at, um, the, oh yeah, it was crazy because I was down in downtown oh, and just seeing all the fans. Yeah, no, they're they are very hardcore, but that that's a real threat, and in people will take that very very serious. So maybe that is what needs to happen. Yeah. Is start throwing people long enough. Say, hey, anyone throws a banana here, we like the next two games. No one, no one shows up the stadium. So now you have, you kind of have to police each other. You see anyone that's even thinking about it, and people will care. I think that I think that's the way you start changing it. Yeah, that one. I mean, it's there's stuff like that that's super overt, and then there's stuff that is you know the insult is in the eye of the beholder, and these are contentious environments. I just yeah, worry yeah. about something like some that, that yeah, where it's sure. like somebody's some going to say, "Oh, so I didn't like, the like w- out there." You know, I get it, but it's hard. just let's control those. How about that? Control those that are way out there. Yeah, and then we could talk about the more subtle ones later. And it does know? impact safety too, right? I mean, if you're throwing crap on the field sure. and you're trying to, you, you you may incite violence by doing that. So there's a lot of like real safety yeah. issues and concerns. Here's my last word on this. On my side is. Uh-huh. That it's really, it's really, um, I think, subhuman or you know, in, inhuman. I, I don't like using inhumane because that's something you apply not to people but to animals or other things. But it's, it's not really um, valuing the dignity of people to do any of this kind of stuff, particularly when you think about what actually has happened. Okay, missing a penalty kick in a national competition with a championship on the line is among the most memorable in a negative way things that any athlete can do period sure it the the thought that you have and you see this in the expression of these young people when they, when they take the shot and they of miss course, man, yeah. it is soul crushing yeah, devastation yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so if you think you're going to add to that By throwing something on the field or calling someone a name. First of all, it's wrong to do. You're a jackass because you're not – there is no more punishment you can inflict on this person if that's what you intend to do. So it's it's A, the wrong thing to do, and B, it's – it's like a total fool's errand because you're not even achieving your end. And it's like, it's a total misunderstanding of how the game is played and what it actually means. These guys are – they're going to be punishing themselves. I mean, hopefully not for a long time, but the reality is it's tough. Right. On yourself. You take it really, really personally. And so I, I think it's terrible all the way around. And I really feel for these guys for missing to begin with. I mean, um, I also think from a strategy as a coach, like bringing in a player who hasn't played a game for almost 120 minutes, 
having to come in the last couple of minutes of a game and then have to kick a penalty kick. There's something to say, like, hey, you got to let people to also adjust to the moment. Yeah, but like you, you can't, can't, but you can't, like, there but you can't sub here. in for penalty kicks. You have to put the players right. who are on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I know. That's, yeah. that's what I'm saying. But oh, like, you're maybe saying, part of it, like, bring them a little earlier. Let them adjust yeah. it to the, the moment. Or if you think you're on your way to a time, maybe don't make the sub in two, with two minutes left, right? You just yeah, let, well, let it play what, what, Yeah, but, uh, but they brought them in purposely, too, so they could be in They could be in that as a striker. Yeah, because they were strikers for the... I don't know. I mean, but it's just you're right. It's just it just adds to us. But anyways, that data we'll look. We'll keep an eye out to when it gets you know hopefully confirmed or whatever it ends up being. But I thought it was a really interesting take on obviously a big global issue that we're dealing with, but from the perspective of performance. Agreed. The beautiful game. All right. Well, now we move on to the beautiful courage or cringe. Courage uh, or cringe. We've got uh, we quite got the assortment. Yeah. DACA, Hobby Lobby, and Idris Elba. What do they have in common? Not much. <laughs> So we'll we'll see. They have in common that they're on this show. All right. So first, courage or cringe. Judge rules that DACA is unlawful and suspends applications, right? So as reported by the New York Times, this past week, federal judge Andrew Hannon of the U.S. District Court in Houston said President Barack Obama exceeded his authority when he created the DACA program, which was a deferred action for childhood arrivals, by executing the order in 2012. Uh, Therefore, ruled that the program was unlawful. Right, this, this is a program that's now almost 20 years old, right? Uh, DACA is a policy that allowed for children who were brought here illegally to stay in the country, go to school, and secure work authorization. Now, since its inception, DACA has enabled more than 800,000 immigrants to remain in this country and secure this, this work authorization, right? Now, in the ruling, Judge Hannon said that current program recipients will not be immediately affected. Basically, for now, only affected new applicants, right? So if you're already in the system, so you're, you're grandfathered in... Uh, that the federal government should not take any immigration, deportation, or criminal actions against them that it would not otherwise take. Okay. Right? And so this also, doesn't create anything new for people that are in a, that situation. Co- correct. Okay. Right. And then he also ruled that the creation of the program violated the Administrative Procedure Act in part because comment from the general public was never sought. Right? Okay. This goes back to where he thinks that Obama um, basically exceeded his, uh, his power, right, while, mm-hmm. within his executive order. In his comments, he said, DHS, or Department of Homeland Security, failed to engage in the statutorily mandated process. So DACA never gained status as a legally binding policy that could impose duties or obligations. The executive branch cannot just enact its own legislative policy when it disagrees with Congress' choice to reject proposed legislation. Right. Congress has not given DHS the power to enact DACA, right? Okay. So based on this ruling, the Department of Homeland Security may continue to accept new applications, but it's temporarily prohibited from approving them, right? Immigrants currently enrolled in the program, most of whom were brought to the United States as children, will for now retain the ability to stay and work in the country. Uh, though those protections, you know, could have could basically go away if the government is unable to rectify a series of legal, of legal shortcomings. Is it, is this an old suit? Do you know who brought this suit? Like what? It's wh- been kind of working its way up, uh-huh. uh, by, by my understanding, because there's been multiple suits related to this, right? So, right. Uh, as a reminder, of this back in 2017, President Trump tried to cancel the program altogether, right? Now that issue went up through federal courts, and it ended up uh, ultimately in the Supreme Court in 2020, where the court ruled against them deeming that his decision to basically get rid of it was both arbitrary and capricious, and therefore it didn't allow him to, to, be, to be able to, uh, to, to, get, to get rid of the program. However, the court did not rule of whether the program had been legally adopted. Right. They were just ruling on the case of what he brought to that. What, what, basically what? said that his reason for getting rid of it was not a good enough reason right. to get rid of it. But, but they but didn't it, rule on whether or not it should have been a thing to begin with. 
Which is, and that has to be one of the things. I mean, there's a point of frustration here. The narrowness here. of these lawsuits. Is, that we yeah, talked about there's it a frustration of, the, of this thing. Then it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I'll, I'll wait till, till, I, till I jump into this thing. But this is part of my frustration with, with these kind of cases, right? Now, in this case, there, there is actual broad support for allowing dreamers, which is another term that was used for people that were under the DACA program, mm-hmm. to stay in the country, right? According to a Pew study, about three quarters of respondents, including majorities of Democrats and Republicans, favored extending them a pathway to permanent legal status, right? These are people that are already within the program, right? I think if you understand what m- who most DACA kids are, it's just such a, it's so logical to be supportive because they've been here their whole lives. They've been their whole life. They themselves, as children, did not have anything to do with whether they're having, even coming to the country, right? Yeah. To your point, um, you know, these are, these are kids that grew up here. Many cases, kids that have gone to school, are working, people that are contributing to society and that because of no choice of their own are in a situation where they are illegal to still in the country, right? And it hasn't been rectified. I've met two DACA kids in the last two weeks. So really? one of them was a DACA kid before DACA, so I guess you couldn't call him a DACA kid. He's not a kid anymore. The other one is a DACA kid. One of them is my friend Isaac, who came over with his mom when he was two, and they overstayed their visa before the program, but he stayed right. for years. Right. And then, you know, now, ironically, he actually runs the immigration policy for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, so like oh, one of the biggest dioceses in the country. And then the other person was the son, uh, is the son of one of the families that our nonprofit helps. And he came over at three, was brought over as well as three, undocumented, whole nine yards, um, but has no recollection of, of Honduras, which is where he's from. Yeah. No, like, he's like, uh, like Long Beach, like, you know, right, right, that's, of that's, course. Yeah. that's where I'm from, right? So it's, it's not, it's a different category. It like, I'm not surprised category, by, yeah. the, by the support, but anyway, go ahead. Now, President Biden, on his first day in office, remember that he signed a bunch of executive orders. One of this included a move to strengthen DACA and create a path to citizenship, mm-hmm. right, which has received some bipartisan support. Now, he's also looking to build support in Congress for this more ambitious plan to allow for up to 10 million other immigrants to live in the country legally. Now, the, the, the reality, though, in the case of DACA, it was initially meant to be a temporary measure, right, which what President Obama was doing. So Congress could pass more comprehensive legislation, which they haven't been able to do for over, in almost now over two, two decades, right? Um, and that's kind of where we are with this thing, right? So if you think about courage or cringe here, right, the way that I framed this here is, is this a politically influenced ruling pushing an anti-immigrant agenda or principle ruling, putting the immigration onus back in the legislative branch where it belongs. Yeah, I think, look, this was one of those ones that you have to separate what actually is happening from a, from a more complex issue. But based on the framing of this, I have to go courage. I think it is a principle ruling that says, look, I'd like to, however I feel about this, this is not the place to actually settle this. You need to actually create a law or amend a law or properly approve a law in order so that it be the law and not try to settle this in the court. So, and that's the the frustration that I have with some of this stuff is how narrowly some of these cases are um, adjudicated. And I understand why, I guess, but like even the thing you said with the Supreme Court, why can't they address it at that point, right? It's like, oh no, Trump is wrong for doing this. Yeah, but we're not going to touch the biggest issue, which is whether or not this thing is actually illegal or a law. We'll let somebody else kind of deal with that. At least that's how I feel. Right. So I think in this particular case, this judge saying, look, like you just can't enact legislation from an executive standpoint. It doesn't work for any party. This has never been settled. We've been kicking the can for 20 years. So I'm going to tell you that it's not. You can hate me, but go get it. Uh, it's like a, a forcing mechanism. 
Right, like a forcing mechanism, go create the legislation, and then we don't have to settle this in a court of law. Now, having said that, and especially because, like I said, I just had contact with DACA kids twice in the last two weeks, you know, I can tell you that I fall into the camp of people who are supportive of the path right. to citizenship and, you know, and all the, the 800,000 or more uh, people who are here that are either DACA or DACA-like, like my friend, um, so for sure, it's not about that. It's it's kind of like separating these two things. But I think it, I think it is principled to the point of being legalistic. Like it's actually like super by the book, right? So if we frame it that way, I think it it has to be courage, even if I may not agree with what the outcome is right, right, right. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've I've gone back and forth on this one. I mean, the the part that really makes me angry in, in, about this issue is the fact that you've had these poor kids who are now adults sitting in this in this sort of mode of, of limbo, right, for now almost 20 years. And all because we cannot, they've as a country... They've grown up in limbo. They've grown up in limbo because as a country, we cannot get our act together and put together an actual policy that we can agree on that addresses this one way or another, right? And even these kids that constantly extending, worry about... Because they have to extend... You have to auto, you have to not renew every two years. I want to say for DACA, right? So you're in this constant state of not knowing: is this the year that I'm not going to get renewed? Am I going to get kicked out now? You know, you, just, you have this battle between presidents and with executive orders and Congress who refuses to get on the same page on anything and, and basically make any take any kind of action. It also really bothers me that the Supreme Court will take this kind of ruling and say, and I fine, you say like it's not a good enough reason, great. But also, you can't ignore that if if it is case because look, frankly, I don't know if it is by the book or not that an executive order by the president couldn't handle this. But it doesn't look good if the Supreme Court looks at an issue and it ignores that fact altogether and only focuses on the reason why another president is looking to cancel it. Like that that doesn't make any sense to me. How you would ignore that? Or at least have some put some kind of opinion against that. Because by not a, by not by not a, a, opining on it, you you my orientation would be is that no, then you said it is a legal thing that he actually did. Then I think that in that case, and the federal judge is wrong yeah. in his interpretation. At least you're you're implying that by saying this, and I think that's the part where when you look at some of the comments back, that's what people are saying. Like we think this is going to get overturned yeah. because of this opinion, but the fact that it wasn't more directly responded to and say, hey, first, we think it's legal what Obama did. And then B, you can't just get rid of it because you just changed your mind. Like, that's not a good enough reason. And if you did that, then like, fine, I respect that. Like, uh, that's better. Isn't this part of a bigger problem, though, that this kind of, this whole idea is, rests on this notion of what you believe the courts should or shouldn't be, like, strict constructionist or more interpretive? Because, you know, the typical conservative uh, viewpoint, right of center would be, no, judges should be strict or stricter constructionists. Right. Right. They should read the law. They should interpret the law. They shouldn't make new law. The left side of the fence and, you know, by varying degrees, but would say, no, let's not miss this opportunity, like what you just said, right? And in this case, I'm equally frustrated, right, that we yeah, just kind of so narrowly did it. But doesn't it rest on that, on that kind of philosophical think, interpretation probably, of what a judge should it, or shouldn't do? It probably does, Charlie. That's what I'm guessing. But I think as a cop-out in this specific case, only because the legality of the law is a per, is a I can't think of the right word. It's 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 an important element of deciding whether or not the reason someone wants to get canceled the law is a good enough reason. Right, because it could say, "Hey, by the way, it's a moot point because the law you're trying to cancel, it was never legal to begin with." So, to me, not answering that first point, just think about that, right? It's like you're trying to enforce a contract, and someone says, "Hey, I want to get out of this contract." 
you're like, okay, what's your reason? Because I think it's bad terms. And when I look at the contract, well, this contract is not enforceable. So therefore, the whole thing just goes away. The terms but don't if matter. I don't agree, if I don't look at the fact whether the contract is enforceable or not, and all I look at is whether or not your reasons for wanting to get out of the contract are true or not, knowing that there is like this big hanging gray area of the enforceability of the contract, and that to me, that's, yeah, that's a, a problem. Good point. Right? Yeah. So you're not creating new law. You're simply, it's a very important element associated with that law that you either have to and address there is or not. Ver- there is versions of that. So I have no idea why, why they wouldn't right. there are, address that, you know? There are um, versions of that or situations like that in the law, like, for instance, the idea of not having standing to bring a suit to begin with. Sure. So there are people yeah, who say, yeah, like, yeah, I, I won't that. even consider the merits of the case because you shouldn't even be in front of me. Like, right. So there is some of that. Yeah, there is that some happens. of that. But, it, but I think in this case, right, do you have standing? I, that, that makes sense. But it, but if something is, which is basically what this judge is saying, is like this shouldn't even ever even begin to, you know, he yeah. never had the power to put this in place anyway. So this shouldn't even ever be the case. I think that is a very important part of the equation in considering whether the reason that President Trump was bringing this law, trying to get rid of it, whether that reason was good enough or not. So funny enough, in this one, I'm actually courage, and I hate to say that I'm courage. Because, but, I, but I think in this case, this is one of the few times where I would agree that this may actually be a forcing mechanism mm-hmm. to look at it, right? To actually have to make a real change. But I really hope, man, that they do something about solving this for these for these poor people that have been in this constant limbo state for almost 20, 20 years. And I think it's ridiculous. And for people that, to, to the thing we we're discussing, they were not, like, they didn't, they didn't, you know, more likely buy their own tickets to get here or whatever. Like, these are kids that were brought here as children, and I think we deserve, you know, to do to do better by them and actually take care of them and making sure that they can have a little bit more stability in their role in this in this country, be able to to contribute the way they have been for the last twenty years. Okay, so a little bit of rant. No, we'll leave that word. Uh, even if we, uh, I don't mind if you rant as long as we uh, we end up on the same place in this one. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy with the rant. One for one. One for one. Uh, so changing tunes here. So courage or cringe? Hobby Lobby faces backlash over newspaper ad calling for Christian-run government. By the way, uh-huh. who goes to Hobby Lobby and Michaels? It's the same person. Like it's you're looking for a craft. You're looking for like a, a, I've gone a model car. Number of times you're looking for like or you have kids because a lot a lot of a lot of things with kids. That's the reason why I've gone to Hobby Lobby a number of times because there's a bunch of stuff that for school for you're mm-hmm. doing activities etc. We do like a lot of art stuff there. They have uh, we like to do uh, paintings so we get the the canvases there, sure. right. So it's a bunch of stuff like that. But it's pretty much the same demo, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. for both places, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. As reported by Newsweek, right, uh, Hobby Lobby, who is that is this arts and crafts store, you know, got itself into some controversy over the Fourth of July weekend after it ran a full page advertisement where it seemed to call for a Christian run Christian run government. See, I know this whole story is already BS because somebody getting into trouble for running an ad in print can't be real because nobody <laughs> exactly. who's going to who see it, it? Who who's going to see it. Now, the advert, which ran nationally, was titled "One Nation Under God." And included the Bible verse, bless the nation whose God is the Lord, as the company also posted Amen. about its campaigns on its social media pages, mm-hmm. right? Now, so basically the, the advert had a bunch of quotes, all of which highlighted the importance of God and government, like mix of God and government kind of thing, uh, by a number of people, including some of those being founding fathers, right? Now, there was a quote from John Adams that read, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, right? 
Now, even with some of those quotes, right, according to FFRF, a nonprofit, I don't forget what it stands for, a nonprofit organization that advocates for atheists, agnostics, and non-theists. There's an organization for everybody uh, at this point. What, what, what would we consider non-theists? People just don't believe in anything? Well, an, but that's a- not, an, atheist that's is, not an atheist. An atheist is somebody who makes a positive claim, right? So God does not exist. An right. agnostic says, I've seen no evidence for the existence of God. A non-theist could be somebody who is Hindu, who has maybe as a pantheist, who believes in many, many gods. Oh. It could be somebody who is uh, Mormon, you know, or Jehovah's Witness, who don't believe in one god, but in like a, uh, you know, a variety of gods, actually. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, the, I didn't even know church, what that meant. The Church of Latter-day Saints, like the, the, which they don't call themselves Mormon anymore, so I don't mean any disrespect, but the, the it used to be called Mormons. The church oh, really? Of, I didn't know that. The Church of Mormons? Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, they are technically... The word is uh, henoists, I think, which is that they believe that there is a number of gods, but there's one big god. Okay. And then there's pantheism, which is, a, yeah, henotheist, I think is what it's called. Then there's pantheist, which is like, you know, like a typical a traditional Hindu faith would have. There's, right. a, there's gods for, you know, everything. And that's, you know, kind of going back even Native American religiosity yeah, yeah, where there's of, yeah. god of the sun, sure, god of sure. the moon, that kind of thing. Henotheist. Yes. Henotheism. I was right. Got it. All right. That's that was a side tangent, but that's great. So that's so these are this this organization, right? So so they said that Hobby Lobby was making it seem like these statements came one after another. So kind of taking away the context that the former president used, but that that he used basically religious and moral as synonyms in the full speech, right? So basically saying, look, you're taking sort of snippets of different speeches and making it sound like it was one thing. But it was a bunch. Did you actually look at the advert? I didn't. No. Uh, yeah, so I did. So it was it was just a, a number of different quotes. Like, yeah. All like one next to each other, right? Different people, right? Now, the company has been placing similar advertisements on U.S. Ho- uh, holidays since Hobby Lobby founder David Green felt commissioned, and I put that in quotes, something, I think something that he actually said, mm-hmm. by God to make them in 1995, right? Mm-hmm. So he felt that he was called by God to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, the company actually said... Uh, and I quote, before long, Hobby Lobby was placing beautiful full-page ads celebrating the real meaning of Christmas, Easter, and Independence Day in newspapers across the country. The impact and relevancy of these messages is ongoing. Now, of course, people took issue with this on social media, especially those from other religious views or beliefs, as being an attack on freedom of religion and the right of religious minorities. Right Now, in July 2020, Hobby Lobby faced calls for boycotts after a photo of a display in one of its stores reading USA Vote Trump. And decorative letters was shared on Twitter. Right? So courage or cringe, freedom of speech or private industry attacking religious freedom? I, I, I went to that uh, article that showed the letters organized on a display case. Uh-huh. I, I mean, you know how many times I've walked into a store and seen customers have rearranged stuff to make it look like something? I doubt highly that anybody put up a a Trump thing inside one of these stores. Um, but oh, the, yeah. Yeah, in that particular example. Right, um, that particular example. Do you, yeah, want, me to, yeah. do you want me to go yeah, first? Go or go want to go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm not really sure what the backlash is for. Is it for the fact that there's this uh, maybe inaccuracy in the quotes or there's a, there's a lack of context given in the quotes or is it the fact that they're linking Christmas and 4th of July and Independence Day with a kind of, uh, you know, Christian worldview. Like, what's I, I think the objection? The, the courage, yeah, I think the objection, 
because it's not, it was. I mean, maybe there is some other controversy around Christmas and everything that people have, right? But the objection specifically is that they're creating a very, very strong link mm-hmm. in the role that God plays in this nation tied to Fourth of July, and in their mind, using the quotes as a way to reinforce how strong of a link there should be between Christianity and God. And, and having a government here in the United States, right? So I think that's the part where some of the quotes that you saw in tweets, of course, were people that were Jewish and other kind of religious people that were saying, hey, like, you're basically, by saying that, you're excluding everyone else that falls under religious minority by making these kind of statements. Uh, and as a matter, of fact, a matter of fact, there was even like a, a, a tweet of someone who was, I don't know, a pastor or something who said, like, this is the kind of thing that... Uh, yeah, I yeah, saw that Like, I served as a pastor for over two decades, organization like Hobby, uh, Hobby, like Hobby Lobby are why so many people believe all Christians are hateful and toler- intolerant bigots. The rest, of, uh, the rest of us apologize for them. So this is not someone that's Christian saying Yeah, this, and maybe right? that's what that's part I'm missing is, like, maybe they did or said something else, because in looking at the... Or just the quotes that you read, blessed uh-huh. is... I mean, the, the, the quote from Scripture, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, one nation under God. Right. These are fairly pedestrian, um, you know, uh, phrases that, you know, not too long ago would have been regarded as just like everyday stuff in a country that was founded by people who had a Judeo-Christian kind of background, right? So I don't see a lot of controversy in that. Maybe their conflation of some of these quotes, if that's what they're being accused of doing, but even the quotes you shared, right? So like, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. So what they're basically saying is like, there's no government we could build that could deal with a population that's, whose passions are not grounded in some type of morality, right? Or, or, right, but, the, but the, the point here of contention would be specifically around a Christian-based view of morality. Right, and to the extent that right, but that, that they want to double down as that being the like the only way to think about this. Government, yeah, look, some right? of the, some of this is is you know again separating out how the company wa- how the country was founded uh-huh. from what that founding provides a environment for. The country was founded by people who had who were theists. I mean, they may not have been like you know uh, evangelical Christians, but they believed right. in God and they were you know exercising you know call it uh, uh, Judeo Christian values and principles in the things that they laid out. Now, mm-hmm. can that lay an environment for the flourishing of people who aren't that? I, I believe it can. So, but then the question could be. In talking about the historicity of something, does that make someone feel bad because they don't participate in that group? Sure. Yeah, I guess it can, right? Mm -hmm. And then who is the speaker? In this case, it's a company that sells, you know, model, uh, you know, cars and uh, popsicle stick crafts. Sure. And like, again, I don't... Sells arts and crafts. Exactly. Sells arts and crafts. I kind of put it in the Chick-fil-A category. So I don't... I don't see the controversy. If they're, I guess they're facing a backlash over this. I don't also see the whole idea of this sort of, uh, uh, you know, whatever it's called, like a- aggravating for a Christian-run government. I see more quotes about you really can't have a kind of joyful population that is not somehow, you know, in this context of of a government that's 
been created with something transcendent in mind. I mean, that's kind of how I read it, but that's because maybe right. I am a Christian. Yeah, so I, I think, think your orientation is is one that probably wouldn't bother you too much. Look, by the way, just to give you the yeah, categories, I, sure. I just pulled it up. Yeah. So they had categories of quotes under presidents. Okay. Quotes under Supreme Court justices. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll read you one really quickly. Yeah. Right? So the Bible, one of the Supreme Court justices quotes: "The Bible is the best uh, is the best of all books." For it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in the in the world and the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and regulate your life by its uh, precepts, right? This is from John uh, John Jay, the first chief justice, sure, right? And then yeah. there's like a bunch of other ones there's like that, right? Famous John Jay College. And now, then there is uh, founding fathers. Sure. There is Supreme Court rulings. There is Congress. There's education and then forward opinion. So in all these categories, what they did is they brought in quotes that sort of tie in basically Christian faith specifically around these areas or individuals that are from those from those groups sort of raising the importance of Christian faith as sort right. of the organizing principles of how we think about this country. And I totally get that, but I mean, you're basically just pointing out history, right? Now, if you can be offended by that or in the context of, you know, arts and crafts, you don't think that that has any place. I get it, and that's your right to be offended, but mm-hmm. I give it a cringe if, if, if about the backlash because I just don't see... Again, if this was, you know, Governor Newsom sending me an email going, the Bible's a great book and you should read it cover to cover, I could totally understand it. But, right, right, right. Or even Facebook, <laughs> to our earlier point, a different kind uh-huh. of company, but... Hobby Lobby, I just don't... It right, doesn't, so doesn't rise you to... Are, I'm a cringe. Uh, you're a cringe. Um... I'm cringe, a cringe, cringe on, on the, the backlash. On the back, cringe yeah, on the, yeah, cringe yeah, sorry, on the backlash. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Cringe on the backlash. Because um, that is what we're doing, right? Yeah, the yeah, backlash. yeah, yeah. Cringe yeah. on the backlash. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. And the backlash that are faced. Look, for me, I'll, I'll start with where I'm at. I'm yep. also cringe on the backlash. I think it is their right to say whatever they want to say um, and to put out this, this position of, of highlighting the Christian, to your point, the Christian tie-ins that we've had over time by and, and has been highlighted by individuals in these different areas of their beliefs that the role that God and Christianity plays within this government, right? I also will be will be supportive of any other company that had the complete opposite perspective. Let's say Christianity or the, any concept of God plays a zero should play zero role in any form of government that we have in this country. As a matter of fact, if they went all out and said, like, why do we even use a Bible when, people, when president gets sworn in? Mm-hmm. What if that president is not even Christian? Like, why does that matter? They should take that out. It should be the Constitution. That's what they should put their, their hand over. Whatever, right? Like, I will be okay with that kind of position with, with them as well. Like, I just think in this kind of case, I do see it as freedom of speech. I don't think they're inciting violence. I don't see any negative that is coming out. They have a very specific opinion. I feel the exact same way of something like, you know, we've talked about Chick-fil-A. Like, hey, your, you know, your owner is a you know, private company. You've, you know, you feel very strongly about your beliefs. That's great. You make it part of what your company is. Now, if you get any kind of backlash from your consumers... From that, and people don't want to per- buy things there anymore. Then that's that's on you. Like you've opened yeah, up that Pandora box. Bed. But that's not really, and I don't think for them, frankly, it's going to happen. I think people are kind of okay with it. Um, and I see if people that, are, of course, they get offended by it, and that's and that's fine. They also have a right to be offended by it. But I personally don't have much of an issue with it because I see it strictly in the category of um, of freedom of press or freedom of speech. Two for two, two for two for two. I'm I'm, I'm not doing well. I'm, I'm not I'm not proud of myself today. <laughs> So the third topic in our little final one on courage or cringe, uh, Idris is it Idris or Idris? Idris, Idris, right? Idris, Idris Elba said. I say that with confidence, like I know, like I've talked to the guy, like he's yeah, my yeah. Buddy. oh boy, no oh, man, boy. He, he doesn't like to be called Idris. <laughs> yeah, it's Idris. Idris. Idris Elba said it should be mandatory for social media users to provide ID 
to prevent racist abuse. Yeah, man. So as reported by BuzzFeed News, right? Actor Idris Elba. Now you know it's accurate. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You may know him from the new film, Suicide Squad, right? And back in the day, he had a pretty good role in The Office. Charles Minor was his name. That's right. Charles Minor. He also, you know, for a while, he was, uh, it was rumored that he may be the next James Bond. Which I still think would have been great. And that, you know, got his own racist response to that. And now he's too old. Actually, no, how old is he? Uh, probably late forties. It's not too old for or James maybe Bond. Maybe early fifty. Yeah. Well, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. He's probably the same age as uh, the current actor, or in the same around uh, the same. Daniel Craig. Yeah, I think Daniel Craig's older than that. Actually. Yeah, maybe right. Yeah. Uh, although Daniel Craig's been doing that role now for ten plus years, true. I would say right. True. 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 Um, yeah, he was born. Daniel Craig was born in nineteen. He's fifty three. Yeah, they're about the same age. I yeah. have to say. You think he's he's in his fifties? Yeah, probably the same same category, same range. Idris Elba was born in 1972. You're not, he's 48. Oh, 48. Okay, a little bit younger. Yeah, so yeah. he could totally be Bond. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so he's calling for more stringent ID verification measures on social media platforms in an attempt to combat racism online, right? Now, this is actually in response to our first story that we talked about, the incident, right, related to the black England players that were being racially abused online, right? Now, Idris, uh, he's calling for social platforms to use these mandatory ID verification for everyone who creates a social media account. Now, to this, he said, people in the public eye get verified on social media. That's, you know, if you guys remember, called the little check mark that people have, right? So you have to, like, verify yourself. The process of verification requires them to provide their identity so everyone knows who is speaking. If cowards are being supported by a vial of privacy and secrecy, then social media is not a safe place. If cowards want to spout racial rhetoric, then say it with your name, not your username. So pretty, I mean, pretty straightforward thought here that, that he has. Uh, so not a new idea, but definitely an interesting one, at, you know, to discuss. And of course, in the age of social media rage and also all these issues with privacy. But listen, hmm. this will be a, a short one for us. All right. So courage or cringe, mandatory verification to bring bad actors to light or another potential attack on consumer privacy for social platforms that already know way too much. You know, what I was thinking about is... Uh-huh. Um, it, I started off thinking this is really stupid and, and this is another kind of out of touch celebrity, you know, but just having you read it and the conversation that we had earlier, well, my position on the conversation around the Trump lawsuit of big tech uh-huh. and that it could also be a forcing mechanism to look at a different classification for these companies, maybe not full utility, but maybe not just regular private company. Right. Makes me think in the context of a reclassification. Potentially, it could actually work. So think of like your phone number, right? I mean, back in the day, people had landlines, right? right. You think about like phone book? kind of Like phone book or also like caller ID, right? I call somebody. They're like, sure, this is this person calling me. I've got their number. I know who they are, right? But that, co- but that company who is enabling that caller ID is not a you know, sort of standard private company, right? They're like a utility. Right. So maybe, so th- th- that's one thought. The other thought is, why do we want to know people's identities? I, the reason for that, okay. I think, is because you want to be able to go say like, I want this person to know that somebody can come knock on their house, on their door. Well, I think in this case, the reason he's saying that is is basically to make it where I was like, hey, if you're going to say something, then you need to stand by what you say. And you can't just hide under usernames, right? Now, right. part of the stand by what you say could mean, to your point, someone to come and knock on your door 
or simply just say, even if it's on just social media, like we I know, know who you are, we know who you are, or you are, are going to attach this self. So whatever repercussions come from you, from you being the case for you doing this is, uh, it's going to be easier for them to come forward. It's going to be like, like very public, right? This is a little bit in the, in the category of cancel culture, right? People that have lost jobs that have, you know, lost opportunity because of something stupid that they did in most cases. And something like this will definitely make it easier, right? If you say something like this, you go after people, then you're putting your reputation on the line uh, because it is actually tied to your actual name, Do in, in, not just a username. Increasingly, though, are personas online closer to your actual name than they used to be? I mean, like, I think it depends on the platform. Okay. Think about things like Reddit and things like that. Not then, no. Yeah. I think it depends. It depends on the platform. Okay. Yeah, but even the platform, you're—I mean, this it's not an ID verification. You're adding that stuff in there, right? But the intent, though, the intent is to instill a check that is based somehow on fear or concern for your safety, be it or or well-being. Let's say, be it professional or physical. That's the threat of you knowing who the person is. Otherwise, why would it matter? Well, it's the, like if yeah, I, the, the matter is the reputation. I would say. Right, it's like you're, it actually ties okay. to your actual reputation. Like, great. So, what is you it? say something, then it's it's but whatever you of, said is is tied back to you as a person. Like, right. it's not just some right made up thing. Where, look, yeah. I know people that would create accounts, troll accounts, yeah. to be able to sure go and just harass people. No, I knew people that I worked with. Like, this, I'm not talking about people that are like fringe people that are like sitting there in the basement. No, 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 no. Like, what makes you pe- think people you work with are not fringe people? Well, that's yeah. the <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Uh, but but yeah, people that I like I knew in in you know in yeah. work settings who had multiple kind of troll yeah. accounts that they would use specifically to harass certain people. And it's that it's and really where he's coming from is the context of getting rid of trolls, trolls who purposely that. are looking to hide their identity so that they can go and do as much damage as they want. On social media. By the way, I'm making his argument a little bit here, but sure. I'm just kind of giving you the positions. Do you think that Idris Elba would give us his ID? Idris Elba had to give us ID in order, be, in order for him to be able to have a verified account. That's his point. That's actually where he's coming from. He's like, we already do it now. That's why all the verified accounts. he's a blue check mark. That's right. So all of the verified accounts already go through that process. Like, he can't just say something on his account. I mean, he could, he could go create a, a fake account or a, a, a troll account, right? But what he's saying is, if I say something, as Idris Elba, you know it's me because I had to go through that process in order to have a little check mark next to it. I'm simply saying everyone else should go to the same process. Don't we have the same feeling that we do about IDs for voting would be a problem if we're asking for IDs for social media? Like, Yeah, potentially, but you could always say- Isn't that going to disenfranchise yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of people? Yeah, you could, you could, yeah that's a, that's a, I hadn't thought about that argument. Maybe. I'm saying I'm that. Sure, I'm a sure little you, slightly tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, no, no, no. I so, don't think there'd be a problem with either, I, but go I ahead. think you could, uh, you could have- Ways to solve for that, right? Uh, in terms of having having uh, some kind of verification, right? But the the point here, the spirit of it is like the the actual having to verify identity. All right, I'm having a little bit of fun with with Mr. Helba. Uh, here's here's what I would say. Um, so it's a cringe for me, but okay. it's I'm going to qualify it by saying that in the context of a reclassification of these companies to something other than the duality of it's a government thing or a private company, but to some kind of communications utility, I could see something like this actually being part of the of the makeup of how these companies work. Okay. Just like the phone company. Yeah. So, but it's a cringe as is. I think it's kind of unworkable and I think it has a lot of problems in it. But again, made me think, made me think. Yeah, I, I think he brings up a really good point. 
I really do. I think he brings a really good point um, in terms of why he's... I think his reasons for the why make sense to me as to what he's trying to solve for, right? It's saying, hey, if you're, if you're going to basically to solve for the issue of people that are just out there just to troll and are and use the, the sort of the privacy of social media to facilitate their trolling, right? So I understand that. The reason why I'm cringe is because there's too much downside to going down this route, right? I, I think there is a big privacy issue that I'm very concerned about um, because now you're start, it's not just about adults because if you start going down this route, then what, where is the cutoff point? So you're saying 18 and over, 21 and over, you know, most social platforms are 13 plus, right? So how are you going to handle that, right? So you guys start thinking about that, that kind of, that kind of issue. I also think adding more personal identifying information to these social platforms that are already struggling with having too much personal identifying information, I just think it's a, it's a problem. I, I have a fundamental issue with that point. And I also think that it opens up what you started with. It opens up a scenario where people are going to be more exposed. I think more, not so much about a guy going and getting beat up for saying something stupid. I get more worried about stalking women, people sure. that 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 could be harmed by people trying to like get to them in some way or another, whether they've done anything at all. I'm going to tell the people that I've went and created a bunch of issues and now, you know, are getting sort of medicine of that they, you know, that they created, but the people that could be potentially harmed by, by this. So I think there's just too much downside. I understand his frustration. I understand his point. And he's going from a person that has to, they have to go through that, right, as, as they go there. So I understand where he's coming from, but I think there's just way too many downsides and go, downside in, in going down that route that he's suggesting. Well, as a person without a blue check, so I didn't even know the process of how you go and become verified or certified. But um, yeah, I agree with what you said. Although presumably, again, and if you think about reclassifying these companies, you could have an opt-out like you do on the phone company to have an unlisted number or to block your caller ID or something yeah, like that. Guess, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's fundamental. It's the larger question, kind of like with the lawsuit thing. It's like, we're not asking the larger question. We're not just trying to like patch the duct tape right. on the kind of, you know... This like right. well, an issue multi-headed of, hydra and we have to figure out. Privacy of having social platforms knowing way too much. It's not just privacy, but using that data to hook people more into into consuming things, into targeting the things for different things. I just think it just it just creates too many downstream issues. Absolutely. Okay. Well that's good. Three for three. That's another rarity. Well, that's I, been a I, special day when we have I to do more remotes. To everyone we have who, to do more remotes. Who's on my side typically? <laughs> Sorry. I will, I, I'll, I'll, I apologize I will be better. To them. I will be better. Next I apologize time. to them too. Thank you. <laughs> um, awesome. Any other, uh, anything else? Jesus? No, no, it's fun. We have a fun show next week. We got, uh, Joe Collins on the show. Joe Collins. Yes. That'd be do, very do, interesting. For those that don't know who Joe Collins is, you want, you want to tell people who Joe Collins is? Joe Collins is a guy who, who ran against Maxine Waters here in the 43rd district, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, for Congress, right? right. The 43rd district in Congress. And he had one of these crazy viral videos. The best attack ad I've seen in my life. And Most he, hilarious. He he's a, he's a black Republican. I'm yeah. not sure if he's concerned. We'll find out where yeah, his yeah. ideology is. But, but, um, but he's a black Republican who run, ran against Maxine Waters. And he ran this crazy spot that got like millions of views um, where he basically sat outside her house. We'll talk about it. But anyway, it's, it's going to be fun to have him on the show. And he's yeah. done a whole bunch of other media. He's been on you know Fox and other places a million times. So 
it'll be uh, very interesting. So he's on the show next week. Um, looking forward to that. We've got some fun shows coming up, so it's going to be um, really good. Uh, I'll just remind you guys, as always, remember to subscribe. Hit up patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. I always get that wrong. I don't know. Patreon.com backslash the diversity remix to support the work that we do. As always, it takes time, energy, and money to run this thing, so we appreciate your support. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you. Again. One last thought, actually. Yeah, I please. Just, I just thought about it, which is we didn't talk about it. Yeah, exactly. We didn't talk about this at the beginning of the episode, yeah. but you know, a lot of our thoughts are are with what's happening in Cuba. Like it's a oh, really, yeah. really difficult situation that is going on right there. There's people who are desperately looking for more freedom, more rights, and we just to say we purposely did not talk about it in this episode Good because point. we want to talk about it next week with when we have Joe Collins on. Uh, kind of getting his, his perspective but it, it is um, I think for those that are not as aware I would just encourage you to just find out read up on it you know and hopefully get different perspectives uh, but it's an issue that has been going on obviously for the last you know 50-60 years um, and they're in a really really tough place so anytime you see people suffer like that it's just you know I think our heart is with them and hopefully there's there's a little better better place for them as, as they go forward. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, we'll talk more about that next week. Lots on Cuba and a bunch of other fun stuff next week. But in the meantime, keep listening, subscribe, and we'll see you guys again next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, And give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.